You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Reading from Exodus 14, verses 5 to 31 this morning, and it's a goodie. (laughs) When the king of Egypt was told that his people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he perceived the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out, out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and threw them into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. 
The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thanks, Don. That is a cracker. Thanks for reading so well. Good morning. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. It's uh, the singing this morning sounded particularly manly. So that was good. Obviously, we have the women at Women's Retreat. Looking forward to them coming back. My wife's there. Looking forward to her coming back. Young dads, how we doing? How you, you this morning? You doing okay? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Only forgotten a few things. Only forgotten to feed one member of the family this week. But it was a dog. That's all right. That's <laughs> better than a child. Uh, that's why the dog was annoying me so much. Hadn't fed her, I forgot. All right, well, Don, thanks for reading our passage so well. What a cracking story, a great series we're in. Part two, really, today of Israel leaving Egypt. We're well into our series on Exodus, second book of the Bible, and it really centers around the story of God's people, doesn't it? The Hebrews, the Israelites, in slavery in Egypt. And we've seen over the weeks, God didn't leave them there. He had a plan for his people to bring them out of slavery, to rescue them from their oppressors. That's been great. I hope you've been enjoying it. Last week, we saw the beginning of Israel leaving Egypt. Great. It's, it's incredible. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, of course, refused to let his workers, his slaves go. And so God sent 10 plagues as judgment upon uh, Pharaoh and Egypt. And finally, after the devastating 10th plague, the, the killing of the every Egyptian firstborn son, Pharaoh relents. Finally, he capitulates and he lets Israel go. And this is a very special moment for Israel. God's people are to never, ever forget what has happened. So they celebrate by God instituting a ritual. We looked at that last week, Passover, which marks the significance of God passing over the Israelite houses. Why? Because of the sign of the blood of the lamb on the doorframe. God passed over their houses as he brought judgment upon Egypt. Last week, we, kinda, we asked the question, how does God save? What do we learn about God as we read these passages of Scripture? Well, we saw last week, how does God save? He saves by substitution. What's going on with the blood on the doorframe? God's people put blood on the doorpost and the doorframe. That's significant. Why? They may not have known necessarily then, but it's pointing, pointing to a really important truth, and that is that life comes from death that their freedom, their rescuing, their redemption from Egypt didn't come at no cost. It comes at a cost, just not their cost. Very important to remember. And of course, as Christians, how significant is that for us? Because it points forward, for us backward, for them forward to the greater truth of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb dying in our place. Last book of the Bible in Revelation 
We have all people gathered around the throne worshipping someone who is in that throne. And who is it? And it's a bizarre symbol. It is a lamb that's been sacrificed, a bloodied slain lamb. That image makes no sense unless we see it here first, right? Of course, the slain lamb is Jesus Christ. Where does that image come from? Here in the book of Exodus. The lamb dying for others, sacrificed for others. Okay, this week, things get even more amazing and spectacular, don't they? Right? Not only are God's people free from their slave owners, free to leave the land of oppression, but their oppressors are, what? Defeated in battle. And here's the crazy thing. The Israelites don't lift a finger. Do you notice that in the reading? They don't lift a finger. We'll come back to that. It's pretty significant. It's an amazing scene. Really, somebody should make a movie about it. It's crazy. It's amazing. So what's the question for this week? Last week we asked, oh, how does God save? What about this week? Well, we're going to see God save in a different way. We'll learn more about his character in that way as well. We're also going to try and answer the question, who does he save and what does God save us from? Now, it's really kind of obvious in the passage, but there's more significance in there than we might realize. And wow, is there significance for you and I today. So who does God end up saving and and, and what does he save us from? We'll see how that's true for the Israelites, but also how that's true for us. The implications are huge. Let's travel through the story, pick up some points along the way. Don started at chapter 14, uh, verse 5. It's quite a long section we're dealing with, so we cut it down for time. But I want to go back a little bit because we missed something kind of significant. Pharaoh has said, get out, leave. The Israelites leave urgently, get out. They're fearful of the Israelites, so they're commanded to leave Egypt And the Israelites leave, not skulking out the back door, but with dignity, heads held high, and they leave. But the story ain't over. It ain't over. They get out of the immediate country of Egypt, and God does an odd thing. If you've been tracking with us in the story of Exodus, this is very God. He does unusual things. He does unexpected things things. This is who God is. He doesn't lead Israel on the most direct route out of the country, the most, the shortest way. The most direct way would have led them through another country, the Philistine country. And the reason we're given immediately is if that had happened, they probably would have attacked Israel. Hundreds of thousands of people coming through your country, that would freak you out. They may have been attacked and they might have been scared and turned around, but there's more going on. Always, there's more going on. God specifically tells Moses, take the people through the desert toward the Red Sea. Not the most direct way. Why? Just, we'll come back to that in a minute. Come back to it in a minute. Now, Pharaoh's told the people leave. Maybe it took a long time for hundreds of thousands of people to leave, but he's finally told they leave, and it looks like Israel aren't coming back. And what does Pharaoh do? You know what? That's okay. I've been wrong. Let's just rebuild our nation. (laughs) No. We experience another flip-flop from Pharaoh right through the plagues. You see it, don't you? Okay, you can go. You can go. Actually, no, you can't. You can go. You go. And now we get another one, even after this brutal 10th plague. He says, what have I done? Our workforce is gone. 
Our slaves are gone. Who's going to clean our toilets? Who's going to clean our homes? Homes? Who's going to wave the palm fronds in front of my face? Who's going to feed me dates? Our slaves are gone. I've got a great idea. What do you reckon, officials? Let's get them back. Let's go after them. Now, come on. It's almost comedic. Someone needs to sit this guy down. He must suffer from extreme bad short-term memory loss, don't you think? I mean, someone needed to sit him down. Pharaoh, just think about what's just happened. The last 10 plagues, your own son has lost his life because you went against Israel and their God. But no one does. No one sits him down. No one reminds him of the immediate past. And the officials seem on board with the plan. Let's get after them. So what does Pharaoh do? He does the only thing he knows how to do. Military might and strength. He gathers a force. He musters up his best forces to bring them back. Now, remember the odd way God took God's people through the desert? Why is that? Well, we're actually told, right? Pharaoh would have had scouts looking out what they were doing. He gets the reports back from the scouts and he hears the report and he thinks they're just wandering around in the desert. They're lost. They don't know what they're doing. They're slaves after all. They're kind of dumb, right? They're lost. They're sitting ducks. They've got the desert on one side, the sea on the other. If we pursue them, we can get them back. And you know why God does it? It's no accident. He does it on purpose. And we're told why, right? It says God's plan, just like the master chess player, right? He entices Pharaoh with this information. He knows what he's going to do. Yes, he hardens his heart, but he knows what Pharaoh wants to do. And he moves him into checkmate. He uses Pharaoh's evil intent against him to judge Egypt and Pharaoh and bring God glory. Did you notice that in the reading? He said it three times, I think. All of this to bring God glory. This was all to bring God glory, to bring Yahweh glory. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? What do you think about when you hear that, to bring God glory? It's a strange concept. Seems a little bit egocentric, don't you think? Certainly would be if it was anybody else. But as we'll see, God getting glory, it's the most right and proper thing. And the most right and proper thing for us as creatures to do to our creator. So Pharaoh, he takes all he has. You notice the focus on chariots? You hear that a couple of times? He had a lot, more than any other nation. 600 of his best chariots took some other chariots, I guess. Many officers and soldiers back in the day, chariots were the symbol of military strength. I guess like tanks today or nuclear weapons, nuclear submarines, how many you had. You had more chariots, you absolutely more uh, probability of winning a contest. This is a picture, what we see, of, of Pharaoh leaving Egypt with his army and chariots. It's a picture of military might and strength. And he goes in pursuit of his lost slaves. All right, meanwhile, what's happening to God's people? Well, they're camped by the river. They've got no idea what's coming. God has taken them there. Israel is exactly where God told them to go. They're camped by the side of the Red Sea. And they hear a noise in the distance. You imagine a noise in the distance, a low rumble, grows louder and louder 
and louder. They strain their eyes to see. It just looks like a cloud of dust. And then there's flashes of light against metal and the sound and the dust and, and the flashes of light. Oh, no, it can't be. It's an army. It's Pharaoh. And I don't think they thought, Pharaoh's come to see us off. You imagine what, they've been fe- what they would feel. It's Pharaoh, his army, his chariots, the most powerful army in the world, Israel. <laughs> they got nothing. And what do they do? What do they say? They say, bring it on. Don't they? We're not worried. We've seen God move so many times, not once, not twice, ten times in the plagues. We've seen him do miraculous things. He'll take care of these clowns. Is that what they say? Not quite. Of course, it's the exact opposite of what they say. And they round on Moses. Poor Moses. Sorry, Moses, there's lots more of this to come. Sorry to say. What do they do? They round on Moses. Here it is here. They say to him, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Love the sarcasm here. Oh, gosh. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. They're so good to us. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses, it's all your fault. This is a terrible idea. I know we all cheered when we left Egypt, but we were just playing along. Truth is, we were happy there. We were happy in Egypt. It's hard to process this reply, isn't it? It's hard to process this paragraph. I mean, after all that God has done for them, Hard to hear it with a straight face without being totally flawed. Wow, this is what you've got to say? I think what's going on here is it's a bit of a tantrum. You know, it's a bit of a temper tantrum. I should know. I've thrown them before and I've got three kids. I've witnessed many. And uh, in, you use hyperbole in tantrums, don't you? You never do this. You always do that can see some spouses nodding. Don't dig your spouse at this point. You do that. No, no. At the first sign of trouble, right, Israel, they're willing to march back into Egypt. They'd rather do that, ignoring all that God has done for them. Again, I'm just struck with this question. Imagine if God had limited himself to their level of faith. Imagine. Tell you what, it's really easy to sit in judgment upon these folks, isn't it? Really easy. Really easy to judge the Israelites for their faithlessness, but really, are we that different? It's not the last time we're going to see Israel grumble. Because what we're seeing here, it's not an Israel problem, it's a human problem. And we'll come back to that. Well, what is Moses' response? Gosh, they really give it to Moses, don't they? And what's his response? He says, I've had it with you. Oh, man, wouldn't that be the temptation? No, he doesn't say that. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. Here we learn a profound truth about 
our great God. And here it is. You see, if God were anything like me, he would have said, I've had it with you. I'm done with you. But I'm so glad God is more patient than me. We learn this, that God will save his people despite their serious, faithless behavior. You hear that? God will save his people despite of our faithless behavior. God will save why? Why does he? Because he said he would. (laughs) Because he made a promise to do just that. God fulfills his promises. Now, why does it matter? It matters because of this. Because if if his promise was based on anything but his own word, which is unshakable, we'd be on shaky ground, you see? Imagine if God said, I'll save you and I'll rescue you. If when you're faced with a tough situation, you show courage, fail, right? Or, okay, I'll redeem you as long as you act worthy enough of being redeemed, fail. Or, okay, I'll fight your enemies if you just stop whinging, fail. Our God saves because he does. And what are we seeing here? Friends, we are seeing Grace. Grace is all over this, right? The Bible is full of it, not just the New Testament. From the very first word of God's word, it is all grace. Creation, an act of grace. All of it. God is a God of grace. Maybe the title of this sermon should be God Saves Winges. You like that? God Saves Winges. I count myself as one of them. What else are we seeing here? Some profound truths. Here, Moses seems to give a a word of comfort, and I think the NIV has translated it, so it's not um, unusual for for us to to, to determine that. He seems to be comforting like, you you know, a child wakes up from a nightmare. Shh, it's okay. Don't be afraid. It's okay. I know it's scary, but everything is going to be all right. One commentator said, no, 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 it's more like um, shut up and watch. It is a bit of a rebuke for their faithfulness. It's more like the be still is just shut up and watch what God will do for you. And here's the important bit. The Lord's going to fight for you. You just be quiet. The Lord's going to fight for you. God's going to take care of this. It's part of the plan. It always has been. Now stand back and watch. And really, right, this plan was absolutely a plan no one was expecting. It sounds completely ludicrous until it happens. You imagine Israel standing at the Red Sea, Egyptians behind them, just see in front of them. What's the plan, guys? I think we need to try and divide this water and get through on dry ground. I mean, come on, it's ludicrous. It's only not bizarre because you've heard it many times before. This is crazy. Moses has done some amazing things in the plagues, but I can't imagine what he would have been thinking. God says to him, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now, unlike you might have seen it in the movies, it doesn't happen immediately. You notice that? The pillar of cloud that's been guiding the people, a pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day, goes behind the Israelites, goes in front of the Egyptians, you know, between the two parties, and uh, there's darkness 
over the Egyptians. The Israelites can see. It's bizarre. And so all night God sends a strong east wind that drives the waters apart. The waters of the Red Sea apart. So by the end of the night in the morning, what a sight meets God's people. <laughs> where there was once a huge body of water, now there is dry land with a wall of water on either side. And God commands them, walk through. wonder how they felt. Can you just picture yourself there for a moment? I love that phrase, a wall of water on the right and on the left. Goodness me, incredible miracle. The pillar of cloud leaves and the Egyptians can now see. They see this miraculous thing that has taken place. Doesn't slow them down though. Doesn't cause them to be thoughtful. They follow. They follow Israel. All of them go in. Soldiers, horses, chariots, they all go in. And remember, this is part of the plan. This is part of God's plan, coaxing Egypt after them, using their evil intent against them. He knows they'll do exactly this. While Egypt is pursuing them, God throws them into confusion. Oh, how dreadful would that be? Remember the chariots? Remember how they are the symbol of military might and power back in the day? Do you notice that is the very thing God uses against them? Their wheels get stuck or the wheels fall off. We're not quite sure what happens. But the very symbol of power, how are we going to bring the Israelites back and defeat them? We've got chariots. And now it is this very thing that brings them down. God mocks what they put their trust in. <laughs> and now suddenly out of nowhere, the Egyptian army state the bleeding obvious. Let's get away from the Israelites. <laughs> the Lord is fighting for them against us. Wow. You realize this only now, only now. What gave it away for you? Was it the 10 plagues or the, the dreadful darkness that you were plunged into moments earlier or maybe the wall of water on your left and right? Yep, it dawns on them. We are in over our heads. What have we done? We've come against the God of creation with spears and horses and wheels and it's not working. Comedy, I think there is some comedy in this, then turns to tragedy. Egypt, their defeat is upon them, it's complete. Israel make it through to the other side. Egypt are left in there confused, running around, chariots stuck, and Moses is told what? Put your staff out again over the waters so that they will return to one. And it was so. It happens, seemingly quickly. The waters come together as they were. The entire army of Pharaoh that's followed Israel is swallowed up in the sea. Wow. God defeats Egypt with what? Not a sword was swung. He uses creation against them. The people who once stood over Israel as their oppressors, they're slave masters. Well, they're defeated. And Israel now stands over them as their bodies are washed up on the shore. Bit of a brutal scene, isn't it? Pharaoh, he set himself up against God as a God. He tried to kill God's own son, Israel, but he now faces the ultimate judgment, destruction. God has defeated their enemies. What a story. 
Now, as we come to the end of the story, let's just pause for a moment. Let's focus just on a couple of key things before we close here. What's the first thing we want to look at? Well, remember Israel on the banks of that river. Cast your mind back there. The armies of Pharaoh pursuing them, bearing down on them, the sea in front. Let me ask you a question. What did Israel contribute to their victory? Of course, the answer is nothing. Right? We've seen that. What do they do? Nothing. They were powerless to do anything against such a powerful army. Well, the truth is they actually did less than nothing, right? It's not like even their faith was of merit. They whinged and whined. They showed such little faith in the God that had done so much for them. What does this teach us? It teaches us something profound about who God saves. He doesn't necessarily save the strong and the mighty, or that's just, it's not relevant. He saves the weak. He saves the vulnerable. He saves the helpless. The ones who need help, right? He saves the people who cry out to him. He does it on the basis of grace. This is who our God is. He's not repelled by the helpless and the broken. And of course, we know this is the very reason God came to earth in Christ. What does Jesus say about himself? People say, why did you come? Why I'm here for the sick, not the healthy. I'm here to, for the lost, not the ones who think they're found. I'm here to heal the broken. This is our God. I'm here for the ones who know they need me. That's the only prerequisite for faith in Christ, isn't it? Just one thing. What is it? Need. The checklist is really short. What do you have? Nothing. You're in. And this is good news for me. It's good news for anyone who would accept the offer of grace from Christ. God saves the needy. What else? He doesn't need our help. <laughs> it's kind of confronting, isn't it? It's a bit humbling. Let's unpack that. He doesn't need our help in defeating our enemies. Now here, who are the enemies? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Pharaoh and Egypt, they're the real enemies. And they also, of course, symbolize oppression. But stay with me here. As soon as Israel leave Egypt, they walk through the Red Sea. What do, we, what do we notice? They're out of Egypt. They leave their evil Egyptian slave drivers behind, but their problems aren't over. What? Their problems aren't over. They're not free from evil. They're not free from sin. Egypt was a physical manifestation of evil and oppression. But you know what? After they leave Egypt, it's still there. It's still present. It's still with them. There's evil around them, outside them, and of course, within them too. And we can relate to this. Ever since the Garden of Eden, human beings have had a sin problem, struggled with the presence of sin and evil. Wouldn't it just be so easy, though, if sin was over there and it was a problem that wasn't here, if we could marshal off areas, segment off areas, that's the problem area there. If only God could deal with that, we'd be okay. But I think we know it's just far messier than that. 
Russian Christian philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you've probably heard this, is a great quote. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. It would be so easy if the problems of our world could be categorised by the other, political parties, other nation states. Just makes us more comfortable, doesn't it? If only God could deal with that. God won't let us get away with it because it's not true, is it? It's messier. There's truth in this statement, right? And therefore, sin and evil, they're not easily defeated, you see, by an army or a plague or a wall of water. I mean, how do you defeat a heart? How do you defeat a heart that's divided with itself? We, we, we need rescuing, but just in a different way, right? A way that doesn't destroy our very selves because it is within us, you see? Paul in Colossians says this. We'll finish in a moment. That's nothing. There it is. He says this. Speaking of Christians, he says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We could unpack this for days. But Paul here makes the point, just be confronting, that we were dead in our sins. And dead people can't do really much for themselves, can they? What can a dead person do for themselves? I was on a camp, a young person's camp, I was speaking on this, and I asked that question rhetorically. I said, what can dead people do for themselves? And one kid put his hand up. Oh, yeah? Make you sad? Yep. Okay, you got me there, buddy. Yeah, okay, that's good. But come on, really. It was a bit sad, wasn't it? Um, what can dead people for nothing? That's the point Paul's trying to make. What can dead You can't do anything for yourself, right? Much like Israel facing the army on the, the, the edge of the sea, they had no hope of defeating. We need someone to act on our behalf to rescue us because we must admit we're powerless to do anything about the state of our hearts, you see? And of course, we have our great rescuer in Jesus Christ. He defeated sin, disarmed our real enemies, sin, power of evil and the devil by taking sin upon himself. By dying in a bizarre way, he killed death once for all. The most unlikely of plans. He killed death by death, defeating evil and the devil by hanging on the cross. And Jesus the conqueror, he made a public spectacle of them by rising again from the dead. And for those in Christ, what does it mean for us? It means, like the Israelites crossed over, we cross over from death to life. As Christians, we've crossed over from our slavery to sin and death to a new beginning as God's people, a new country, yet we are, of course, still on that journey. 
after Israel got through the Red Sea, chapter 14, you know what happens in chapter 15? They sing a great song, the Song of Moses it's called, and it recounts the battle. It's a beautiful moment. Read it this week, Exodus 15. And one of the couple of the verses says this, I love it. Who among you, so who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is like our God? And as Christians, we, we should sing the same, yeah? We should rejoice in a similar way. Experiencing what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Who is like you, God? There is no one like you. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise.